Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Listen to this verse. Isn't this frustrating? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about this vision that he had just received from the Lord. He tries to act like it's not him and it's like somebody else, but I mean, we know it's him. It's like, really, Paul? Come on. And he says, he says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I think we all need that sometimes, someone to stop us from exalting ourselves. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and this is what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so God tells Paul, no, 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 you don't, you don't get it. I need to place something in your life that absolutely cripples you, that brings you to a place of understanding that through your weakness is my power made strong in and through you. That's, it. That's a freebie. That's not even the message tonight. Call it a prophetic word or what, but one of y'all needed to hear that. And so Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses. And then he goes on in this other list of things he's well content with. I'm not well content with weakness, but I, I need to be. We need to be so that the power of Christ can go to work in and through us. Hey, how you doing? Just jumped right into like a sermonette, didn't I? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bible. That's way too short. That's not going to work. Um, I've, there's a lot of faces that I, I haven't recognized. I'm, I'm going to make you uh, feel uncomfortable. If, if it's your first time being here, put a hand up for me. Cool. ton of y'all. Well, hey, uh, please, there's a first-time visitor card that hopefully you guys have seen in the center of your table. Fill it out. Put some information down so that we can kind of reach out to you, say hello. Um, yes, some people do put like fake names down. I have one in my office that says uh, Barack Obama and uh, he was invited by uh, Joe Biden. It was, it's kind of lame, but funny. It, was, it really happened? Oh, that's okay. If this is your first time coming, we, we are a ministry geared uh, towards equipping you, young professionals, in the Orlando area. And our goal is to come alongside you guys to equip you with the tools that you need uh, and hopefully the encouragement you need uh, to fulfill God's calling in your life in this season of life. Uh, Whatever that season is, whether it's singleness, uh, whether it's killing it on the job, whether it's, I don't know, whatever it is, wherever you're at, our goal is to come alongside you and help to equip you uh, as you live for Jesus, hopefully, uh, in the marketplace. Uh, We understand that most of you uh, that don't work in church or in ministry, uh, you work in a post-Christian culture and in a culture that is hostile not just to the Christian gospel, but also to any kind of objective claim uh, of truth, any claim of objective truth. And so we want to also equip you to be able to defend your faith apologetically. Uh, Not apologetically in the sense that you're sorry for being a Christian, but apologetically so that you can stand firm in what you believe uh, and and argue for the faith in a winsome way, but also in an effective way. And so that's that's why we exist. That's why we're here. 
Uh, We don't just gather so singles can have a place to hang out. Instead, we want to infiltrate your demographic in Orlando because you know you guys are the largest demographic in Orlando. Young professionals, singles even, but young professional millennials. And so we have an obligation and an opportunity uh, to equip and to reach uh, your coworkers, your fellow cohorts with the gospel. And so that's why we exist, to challenge you guys to live with purpose and on purpose. Uh, that's kind of our tagline as we figure out how to communicate what the drive is all about. Um, I'm, I'm still new on the job. I've been here about four and a half months and still trying to figure out how can we best engage uh, this culture in Orlando. So I'm so glad you guys are here. The Apostle Paul understood uh, where we would be 2,000 plus years later as he wrote these words in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, he identifies the problem that we, children of light, Christians, live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know, almost 2,000 years ago, he wrote those words. Not much has changed. And so in light of the work of God through Christ on his cross, Paul calls us as Christians to something that is markedly different, to live in a manner that is distinct from the culture that we live in. And so for those of you who frequent uh, the drive, you know that we've been walking through the book of Philippians. We're in chapter two. We're actually gonna try to finish chapter two tonight. It's like, I don't know, like 12 or 13 verses. Uh, we're, going, we're going big tonight. And we're gonna go from chapter two, probably 14, and try to get all the way to verse 30. And last week, we just camped out in two verses. Uh, And for those of you that were here last week, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, or 12 and 13. And in it, we saw two different types of work. Uh, Verse 12 talks about we as Christians are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, And then we saw in verse 13 that God himself is at work in us and through, excuse me, us that we have a responsibility to work this tremendous amount of effort and labor to put forth trying to equip and trying to communicate the gospel to people around us. And then verse 13, God is at work empowering and energizing and equipping us to do that work. Divine sovereignty, human responsivity coming together. You know, we, we said last week, said it like this, the power that compels us comes from the God who already indwells us. And so tonight we pick up that last thought that Paul had. What does it look like for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, especially for you guys in the marketplace where you work or in, 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 on the job or in the relationships that you have in your sphere of influence? And so what we see in 14 to 18, that first kind of section we're going to look at, are two ways that we flesh out working out our salvation. We shine for Jesus, we get our shine on, and we also rejoice in suffering And then in that second part of the chapter, 19 to 30, Paul introduces us to two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are models and examples of guys who are fleshing out these two things that we see in the first passage. And we got to keep it in context. Remember, Paul is talking in this entire chapter from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to 2, 18. He's talking about humility and unity and harmony because there was a very real threat going on in the church at Philippi. There was the evidence of disunity and disharmony starting to crop up in the church. And Paul was pointing all of them back to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus is the model. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the source. And if you guys begin begin seeing Jesus as your relationship to all things, 
man, disunity and disharmony will flee from your relationships. So we got two snapshots, working out our salvation, 14 to 18, and then two models of these snapshots, the rest of chapter two. Let me pray really quick and then we'll get into the word. Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity once again to open up your word, to open up our mouths uh, as the body of Christ, as this gathering. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make us attentive uh, to what you want to say in this room. Uh, we're grateful, Father, for what you've done in our lives. I know many stories of people who have been just transformed by the power of your grace and your good news. And God, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts now. Reveal yourself. If somebody in here has doubts and uncertainties or questions about this Christian faith that we proclaim, I, I pray, Father, that you would begin to, to answer some of those questions and to continue them uh, on this journey of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Philippians 2, verse 12, work out your salvation, right? Verse 13, it's God who is at work in you and through you. And then we get to verse 14, and it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because we just kind of got to stop here, right? (laughs) Because this preaches, and I'm pretty sure all of us are guilty of this, Right? And if you're not, then you need to come up here and school us on how to not live in a place of grumbling and complaining and disputing. My translation says grumbling. Does anybody's translation have something else? Grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and arguing. Complaining and arguing. Okay, okay, that's much better vernacular. We, we know all about complaining, right? The word grumbling here is the translation of a Greek word that means to mutter or to murmur. Literally, it was used in the context of, of doves, the cooing of doves, which means it's not this loud, outspoken dissatisfaction, but it's that kind of soft murmur, that kind of muttering under your breath, dissatisfaction that's going on. That word disputing or arguing, it comes from a word that means discussion or debate, but it, it's got this underlying idea of suspicion or doubt. And Paul's point here is that muttering and murmuring of discontent it inevitably leads to arguments and disputes. Anybody get into an argument this week? A husband or a wife or a significant other or a friend or a coworker or a family member? The chances are pretty good there was some murmuring and some disputes and some, some discontentment that was going on inside of our hearts. You know, for me, this murmuring and muttering, it's not as external as much as it is internal in my heart. And so I know all about this. And why is, why is Paul talking about disputing and arguing and murmuring again? He's pointing us back to disunity and disharmony. Remember the sisters from chapter four we looked at two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Chapter four, verse one and two, Iodia and Syntyche. These two girls, these ladies, they were at the center of some of this relational fuss. And Paul says to these women, he says, listen, I need you guys to live in harmony with each other. Disunity was becoming, uh, was kind of sneaking into the church. And at the root of their grumbling and at their complaining, man, those things combined to create the seeds of rebellion. Such behavior is evidence of unbelief. It sounds kind of harsh, right? Like how in the world could grumbling and complaining and disputing and arguing, what can those things have to do with unbelief? What do you think? Mm-hmm. 
Say that again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Confidence in the source. And, and well, and ultimately we believe the source is, is God. God is the source of all of our life. And so if we're grumbling and complaining and disputing, uh, actually it's, it's a judgment call against God. It's a judgment call against God because it's placing ourselves in the role of the Lord of the moment. You know, things in my life have not, have not happened as I saw fit or as I decreed. Things, things just, just aren't going my way. Somebody missed the memo that my happiness and my desires and convenience are to be the highest priority. And so when we grumble and when we complain, in essence, we're telling those around us that we believe that God's not doing a very good job in our lives. And, you know, if given the chance, we could do a whole lot better. But we have to hear Paul saying that grumbling and complaining, it's this self-obsessed, this toxic expression that masks our true identity as believers. Because if God is at work in us and through us, as we saw in verse 13, then is there anything really that's beyond his scope? Anything that would prevent him from working for his good pleasure in you and in me? See, grumbling, complaining imply that God has stepped out for a moment and our inconveniences indicates that he's obviously not paying attention to our welfare, which we know is not true. At least those of us who really know Jesus, really know that God is always working things for good in our lives. And yet grumbling and complaining usually come from a place of discontentment because our agendas and our needs and our desires aren't being met. And so we need to see, at least hear Paul saying, if God is loving you and we believe he is always loving us and he's always at work in us, then we need to stop complaining. And we need to learn to allow every circumstance in our life, whatever it is that we're grumbling and disputing and complaining about, begin to serve as a call to prayer in our lives. Be the very thing that escorts us into a place of dependence upon the true Lord of the moment. Now, look, look at verse 14 again. What's the real problem part of this passage in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's, it's the all, right? Like, listen, most of us are able to do some things without complaint. Some of us are genuinely cheerful. Nilufar, you always have a smile on your face, right? Some of you just are always happy. And most of you can do most things without complaint. But the imperative here of Paul is to do all things all things without grumbling, without complaining, without leading to dispute and argument. This is impossible for us, but it's not impossible for the life that we've received in Christ. Because if we see anything in Jesus, Jesus's life isn't a life that complained and grumbled. There's a difference between grumbling and complaining and pouring out our grief at the feet of God and the feet of Jesus. I was thinking of this, and I I didn't put it in my notes, but Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he's, he's literally on his knees, and Luke says that he's sweating droplets of blood, and he says to the Father, God, is there any way for this cup to pass? I interpret that as Jesus really didn't want to go to the cross. And yet Jesus was a man who never sinned. And so for him to not want to do at that moment God's call and will on his life doesn't mean that he was sinning. He was being honest and pouring out his grief into the infinite love of God the Father. And of course, his conclusion was what? Not my will, but your will, Father. And so there's a difference between us being real and being honest with God and pouring out our grief and grumbling and complaining because we're not getting our needs met or at least our perceived needs 
Usually I find what's happening when I'm grumbling and complaining because my agenda is not being met. Usually God is knocking out my constructs from beneath me. He's usually knocking out those props and those constructs and those false ideas I have of God. And it's the grace of God to do that in our lives. It is the grace of God to break down your false ideas of who God is. He's not a, he's not a magic genie that we, that we rub when we need a get out of jail free card or we need help. And so Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining or disputing. There's lots of ways to do this. And you guys are going to talk about those a little bit later around your table. But why? Why does Paul say do all things without grumbling and complaining? Verse 15, so that, so that. Paul's about to tell us why we can never allow these things to be at work in the life of a believer so that you will prove yourselves, verse 15, to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul ties our not grumbling and disputing to our witness in the world as children of light. That's pretty sobering. Our actions, our attitudes, they directly affect the gospel going forth. Christian businessman, Christian businesswoman, your attitude has a direct bearing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's heavy. But I don't want you to hear that in a a condemning or condemnation kind of way. But hear that in such a way that the Jesus who has joined himself to you and who lives and wants to express his life through you desires to communicate the good news in and through you. And when we allow that light to shine through us, we will find that it's an attractive life and people will be drawn to us. This isn't a call to try harder to be like Jesus. We, we said that last week. No one can be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And if you have confessed him as Lord, he is dwelling inside of you. He's joined his spirit to your human spirit and he desires to now express his life in you, as you, and through you. That's, that's the great news of the gospel. And so we are to not grumble and not to complain because we are to prove ourselves as children of light. Jesus endured so much more than our inconvenience and our frustrations. And so he knows what it's like to go without and he knows how to equip you to be able to die to yourself and die to your own agenda and begin to express himself through you. And so our witness in the world is children of light here. It's an imperative, but it's not your light. It's Jesus let him shine. And when we allow grumbling and disputing and complaining to shroud the life of Christ in us, the gospel is at stake. Now, important note, we don't, we don't become children of God by, by not grumbling and complaining. You get that, right? It's through repentance and faith that we become children of God. But we are to be known as children of God by avoiding these anti-Christ attitudes and actions so that we might prove ourselves to be what? Blameless and innocent children of God, above reproached in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Let me, let me unpack these words in verse 15. Blameless has this idea of free from fault or defect, right? Innocent here means unmixed and unadulterated. The idea is that there wouldn't be anything in our lives that would give a lost world grounds for saying, you know what? You are no different than the world. 
We are to be distinct. We are to look different from the world. Why? Because as Paul says, man, for me to live is Christ. My life is Jesus Christ now and anything coming out of me should resemble his nature, his character, his life. And so we are to be blameless and innocent. In converse, we see in a crooked and a perverse generation. And this is, I mean, this is common sense if you look on the news or you open up your Twitter feed. Crooked is the idea of turning away from the truth. It's a, it's a very apt term to describe our culture. And perverse is an even stronger word. It means distorted or having a twist. Twisted is, is a good term to describe where people, a world where people define their truth based on what's true for me, right? Being our own point of reference for truth. Either truth is what God says it is or it's, it's, it's not truth. And yet we consistently come up against a culture and a world that they get to define truth for themselves. It's diluted and people are so deceived. And so we are, by our lives and by our attitudes and by the lack of grumbling and complaining, we are to so show ourselves to be children of light. Again, this isn't to condemn people. This is to show the attractiveness of what it looks like to be joined to the God of the universe. And so Paul recognized we live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Not much is changing, yet the light shines brightest when the landscape is the darkest. And so for those who are excited about revival coming to our city and to our country, this this should excite us because it's really dark outside. It's really dark on the campus of our universities and possibly at your job of employment. And so this should encourage us because our lives can draw people to Jesus. So verse 16, how are we as God's people to appear as lights in this word? We are to hold fast to the word of life. It means two things. It means grasping at, it means clutching, it means holding onto, but it also means holding forth. This word has been found in secular documents in the Greek world as, as offering wine to a guest, meaning to hold forth or to offer out. So not only are we to hold on to the word of life, First John says that the word of life is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal life. So we are to hold on to him, but we are also to hold him out, to offer, to extend, to make known, which goes hand in hand with the functions of being a light, right? What does a light do? A light exposes, a light reveals, a light makes visible, allows you to see. I can almost hear Jesus' words here from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light shine. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And so we're, we're to not grumble. We're not to complain. How do we do that? There's lots of ways. But we, we first of all acknowledge that God just might have some information that we don't have and learn to press into and trust his agenda over ours. Paul ends this section in 17 and 18, describing how he sees himself in his ministry labors. And it launches us out into verses 19 through 30, where Paul begins to share some news about these personal friends of his, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we're not gonna read the whole passage in its entirety. Instead, look at verse 20 there, speaking of Timothy. Philippians 2, verse 20, he says, for I, Paul, have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Take a look at those three verses there. 
What words or what phrases stand out to you about Timothy's character or his integrity or his person? Kindred spirit. What's that mean? What do you think? Pure? Okay. It literally translates as equal souls. It's this idea that Paul and Timothy were kindreds. They were equal in soul. They were on the same page. They had the same mind on things. The same thing that Paul wrote about in in chapter 2 when he talked about Jesus. When he said, I want you to strive to have the same mind. The same mind that's in Christ Jesus. Striving together for the sake of the gospel. And so he's a kindred spirit with him. Their, Their hearts, they beat for the same thing. And of all the people that could have gone to the Philippians to take this letter to them, I mean, Paul recognized that, man, no one else but Timothy had the same interest for the Philippians. Do you remember how the church started in, in Philippi back in Acts 16 a couple of months ago? Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke. Paul's walking around and the demon slave girl's following him and Paul casts out the demon. And what happens? The magistrates grab him and they start beating and whipping Paul and Silas and they throw him in the dungeon cell and lock him in the stocks. But Timothy and Luke were left behind. They think Timothy and Luke were left behind because they looked more of Greek dress and Paul and Silas were clearly Jews. And so Timothy and Luke were left behind. And and I... This is me reading between the white spaces, but I got to believe that Timothy stayed behind with all of those believers, staying up late with them, praying with them, helping to comfort them as they waited to see what would happen with Paul and Silas. And as far as we can tell, this is the only relational mileage Timothy had with these believers, yet because of that gospel partnership with them, I mean, he was so genuinely concerned for them. He had such a desire to work for them so he could get the gospel to them. And Timothy had an others-centered interest in other people, even if it was risky to himself. This is a fruit of the spirit when others' interest takes over the self-interest in our lives. And so what we're seeing in Timothy is that when we're working out our salvation, self-interest is no longer the basis of our reality. Other people are. Why? Because... Remember, this isn't just the story, Philippians, the story of Paul. It's the story of the Jesus who indwelt Paul. It's the story of the Jesus who indwelt Timothy. And Jesus was a life for others. And so Timothy was so concerned about these guys. He repented of a me first kind of living and he was consenting to a you first. You wanna know one of the surefire ways that you were living a self-interested life? It's when people become meaningful to you only in as much as you can get out of them to the degree that they are useful to you. It's a phrase called utilitarian. It means something that's designed that can be consumed and used uh, for the greatest benefit to the most people. And when we begin to look at people with a self-centered me first reality, then we are looking at people and how they can benefit us. People become a means to an end. It's the same thing that the self-motivated preachers back in chapter one were doing. Remember, they were preaching Christ from selfish ambition and motive. What was their me first intentions to line their pockets, to make trouble for Paul, to, to build their own esteem and to represent their own glory. And Paul's like, no, 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 look at Timothy. Timothy desired to get the gospel to these guys and to work for them and to serve them. And so Paul holds up Timothy as a guy who, who lived out what he's preaching about. Now look at Epaphroditus, verse 25. There's another guy here. 
And in verse 25, Paul writes, but I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you'd heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Take a look at those couple of verses. Same deal. What stands out to you? What words or adjectives does Paul use to demonstrate the character of this guy? Calls him his brother. Okay. Paul sees him as family here. What else? What's that? Longing and distress. It's, it's real interesting. He got sick and he was supposed to take them the letter. So he's distressed that they're distressed that he's distressed, right? It's like, I can't wait to get there so I can tell them that I'm okay that everything's all right with me. They might've got mixed up and they weren't sure exactly why he wasn't there. And he was so flustered at that because he cared about people that he wanted to let them know, I'm, I'm really okay. I, I don't think about people this much, honestly. I mean, other than the people that are in my circle, my family, my kid, my wife. And yet Epaphroditus is, is on his deathbed here. And he's willing to risk everything to communicate the good news to these believers. I love how Paul, the older disciple here, the spiritual father in the faith, he sets himself and Epaphroditus on level ground. There's no inequality here. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He says, we are on the same page here. And then he uses a really cool word. He calls him a minister to my need. And this minister is an awesome word. It's the word liturgos in the Greek. I probably didn't pronounce that right, but it's where we get our word liturgy from. It's used of Christ's priestly ministry in Hebrews 8 and Paul's service in the evangelism in Romans 15. And this word was someone who in Paul's day was able to perform a public service at their own expense. It could be a guy who had a lot of money who could like have a traveling chorus to come into your town and put on a performance so the people in the village could see something that they could never afford. Somebody who could by their own expense pay so something could happen. And so Epaphroditus was willing to pay the price on behalf of these brothers and sisters in Christ. And so his ministry, his liturgy, his life, it involved risks. And so do ours as children of God. Look at verse 29 and 30. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Epaphroditus was the one who was gonna take this letter back that Paul was writing. Receive him with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Epaphroditus would risk his very life to get this letter back to them, to serve Paul, to serve the Philippians. There was a, there was a calculated recklessness in his life to risk everything for the sake of of Christ and for the gospel. And so both Timothy and Epaphroditus, they repented of a me first kind of living. They understood their mission, right? As lights. And even though these guys certainly grumbled and complained, they're humans, right? We all do it. Paul presents them as guys who were no, never so immersed in their own issues and struggles that they didn't have time or energy to think of other people. And that's a challenge for all of us 
to begin to look at people and to esteem them as more important than ourselves. That, that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Esteem one another as more important than yourselves. Don't just meet your own needs and your own interests, but also the interests of other people. Where did they see this modeled? Look at 17 and 18 and we'll land this plane. Paul says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This drink offering that Paul mentions, it was both involved in pagan religious ceremonies as well as the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And the drink offering specifically was the latter part of the sacrifice, right? So you put your goat, you put your lamb, you put your sheep on the altar and it's being consumed. And the very last part of the offering was a drink offering where you would pour your offering out on top of the sacrifice. And it was always the lesser part of the sacrifice. Paul is saying, guys, your sacrifice and obedience and service, that's the sacrifice that I just want to pour out my life on top of. Paul, this guy, the greatest missionary the world will ever know is like, I could take a back seat. I just want my life to be a drink offering on top of your faith and your service. Remember, Paul's in jail. He's not sure if he's getting out. He doesn't know if he's going to lose his head. He did. He died under Nero martyred for the gospel's sake. And he says, my life isn't that important to me that I need to build my own resume and my glory. I just wanna be a drink offering. Talk about humility. And he's rejoicing about the fact that someday he would be the lesser part of somebody else's sacrifice and service of the faith. And so in Paul, in Timothy, in Epaphroditus, we see examples of this, this poured out life. I don't, I don't know any other way to call it this poured out life. Same for Timothy, same for Epaphroditus. And Paul says, you too, you too. He's not just talking to these guys. This is a timeless word. He's talking to you and me. He says, you too, verse 18. I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And the truth is guys, there is much joy that takes place when Jesus expresses his poured out life in and through you and me. If we've confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, we have been joined to this poured out life. I promise you, God desires to express his life through you. In every situation you come up against, every unlovable person, remember God would not call you to walk the second mile unless he joined you to a second mile life that is willing and able. Wouldn't tell you to forgive 70 times Seven, if he did not give you both the source and the supply of his life to do that. And so what looks like verses 19 to 30 is this personal aside of Paul talking about two guys that he had discipled. Really, he's lifting up examples of what this life looks like, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And for those of us in the room, if we have made this confession that Jesus is Lord, if we've been born again, there is a purpose to our life and that purpose really is to be poured out for one another. That is the attractive life that people out in the world that don't know Jesus, that are disillusioned with the church, that only see Jesus as this right-wing extremist, they need to see the poured out life, the sacrificial servant-hearted life that is begging to find expression in and through you. 
No grumbling, no complaining. The gospel's at stake. And the poured out life of Jesus wants to find expression in and through us, the church. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.